Hello, and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack, and today I'm joined by Lan Absegogati, who is a writer and lecturer in history and theory of art at Slade, London. Lizzie Homersham, who is a writer and editor based in London too. Jack Smurthwaite, who is also a curator and writer based in London. And Morgan Quaintance, who is an artist and writer. Uh, before I introduce the program, uh, I'd like to inform listeners that, of the program that they can receive a special subscription offer to the magazine Art Monthly. If you, uh, if you take out a print subscription, you also get a digital subscription for free, which includes access to over 40 years of the magazine's history. Uh, further details are altmonthly.co.uk slash resonance offer. Um, okay, so back to the show. And uh, so Jack, Jack's here, and he will discuss Mark Fisher's collected writings, recently published by Repeated Books. Uh, Morgan Quaintance will discuss gentrification and the work of Beau Gamelin Ensemble, whose show is currently at Cooper Gallery at Dundee. Uh, Lizzie, Lizzie reports back on before pe- projection video sculpture 1974 to 1995, which is on show at the Sculpture Center in New York. Uh, but first, Lan. Uh, you reviewed Flo Brooks's show, uh, which is still on at Project Native Informant, uh, which is also in London. Uh, Lan, we have discussed over the last year, or even more now, uh, the the emergence of figuration and but and the different conditions that have sort of supported that. Um, but first, I wondered if we could discuss or begin by saying something about Brooks's work mm-hmm. and uh, and the show itself, which is called Scrubbers. Um, so maybe that's a good way to start. Um, so start, you know, with the title and how he's, he's depicting in this work. Sure. Um, so the exhibition is five paintings, and uh, the 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 title of Scrubbers is given to this project because the each painting tracks a, a fictional cleaning company, which yep. is called Scrubbers, and you see this appear in various um, various of the of the paintings in the show. So in one of them, you see two two people sitting by the banks of the river, and uh, they're wearing a branded Scrubbers top. So <laughs> the idea of the exhibition is to is to track the employees of this fictional cleaning company. And um, each painting takes place in a particular space. So one of the the first one is you come in, uh, I read it as a sort of locker room or break room. Uh, One of the figures who appears in that is is shaving her legs. The other one's taking a phone call. The next painting as you move on on is uh, two people sitting by the banks of the river. It looks like Mm -hmm. a kind of break from work. Then there's one in a gym, one in a, a toilet, and then one that is um, takes place in a kind of, I think it's supposed to be a therapist's room. Mm-hmm. It didn't immediately read to me like a therapist's consulting room, but it's a kind of institutional space. Um, and all the paintings uh, have a kind of endless proliferation of imagery around cleaning products, pharmaceuticals, um, there's repeated reference to the contemporary political landscape in Britain, so in one painting you see a pro-Brexit sticker and then an anti-Brexit sticker next to it, and all these elements kind of build up as you as you walk through it, so it feels quite narrative-heavy in some mm. way as an exhibition. And Brooks himself, he sort of centres on these very contested boundaries and zones, it seems, of of the changing room of certain sites of kind of where gender becomes sort of played out in a way like yeah changing areas or other kinds of sites like that do you want to talk a little bit about how he depicts those and how they come into play through the work because it seems central in a way yeah um so uh a lot of the work is looking at 
kind of questions around masculinity in particular, I think, uh, or, or I suppose gender, broadly speaking. Um, as far as I know, Brooks trans transitioned maybe in the last few years. I, d I don't know exactly, but um, much of the work is also thinking about gender from, I guess, a trans perspective or the, the interaction between gender and the healthcare system or uh, pharmaceuticals. So you see, in, for example, in the painting that's set in this uh, toilet, in this public mm. toilet, you see um, on the left-hand side the, 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 one of the scrubbers, cleaners, mm. cleaning the, the mirror, I think, and then there's a person in another corner who's taking a piss. And then there's the kind of subterranean level is how I described it in the review of the painting has these sort of pipes mm. which have like shit floating through them, but also pharmaceuticals, a, a packet that to me I read immediately is like a contraceptive pill packet, mm. which kind of made me think of all these articles that I'd read at various points in, in like the Daily Mail that were like contraceptives yeah. are going into our water system and turning fish into male fish into female mm. fish so so there's all this sort of references that um feel totally specific and hyper particular mm. but i think for me the thing that i found really exciting about the work was that despite that hyper specific quality to it it never felt kind of um like it was at risk of becoming immediately outmoded or or like redundant or mm. something like it, it felt really um, visceral and humorous and mm. um, yeah there's a sort of particular yeah. take that is being drawn up here which intersects numerous things mm. such as brexit and these kind yeah. of strange intersections of yeah the hidden hidden costs of certain kinds of labor labor provision yeah yeah um and again this this hormonal level which yeah mm. is soup like undercurrent yeah. where things are sort of both acknowledged but pushed away or, yeah. or rinsed away and then what comes back within these sort of exchanges mm. you know um that are depicted through these is it five is it six or seven five five paintings, paintings. yeah yeah and they've got quite humorous in a way quite humorous titles i yeah. think yeah yeah um, the titles are great they're like uh i think my favorite one was the second one which is called um uh butts only like cigarette butt mm. that's the sound that lonely makes which like th this painting has this sort of cigarette butt dispenser in it so but the cigarette butt dispenser has a finger coming out of it out of the grill so it suddenly looks like a glory hole or it has this very like sexual quality to it um but then the the para like the second part of the, the sentence that's the sound that lonely makes to me it sounded like a house song or something like so mm. they all they have this really I feel like this is very exuberant playing with language in the titles, which feels linked into the sort of exuberance in, in the form of the works. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think for me, the strength in the way that he's putting these different things together, like Brexit, hormones, cleaning products, uh, unseen labour, is all very... Um, it's, it's not sort of didactic or like um, uh, overly explained or sort mm. of obvious like it asked the viewer to do some work and in, in linking these things together and to me it, it felt very provocative how it was doing that yeah there's almost a kind of drift of yeah. certain kinds of objects that perhaps maybe are more redolently meaningful or uh available to certain viewers more than others i yeah, think yeah yeah totally uh, where yeah. i think certain people will key into the material yeah. that's being displayed faster perhaps Absolutely. you know and that's what's interesting about it it's depicting a kind of 
uh, yeah, lives that perhaps have otherwise been not been depicted. And I think this yeah. is interesting in terms of figuration. Do you want to talk about perhaps? Yeah, I think that is what I find. I, I mean, this is something that I've been interested in for, I suppose, probably two years or so now. Mm. Um, is the? I mean, not. I, I'm always a bit wary to say the reemergence of figurative painting yeah. or something because it's not like it ever disappeared but it certainly feels like it has a different um a different level of visibility in the last two years and particularly i think you see this with artists may i guess i mainly think of like a u.s and european context mm -hmm. and a lot of the artists that i'm thinking of are um kind of engaged with questions about identity um in terms of race in terms of gender in terms of sexuality through forms of figuration and for me one of the questions that i have about this work and i you know i don't think it's like you can put it all together i don't think you can put jordan castile with elisa nissenbaum with flo brooks just because mm -hmm. they're all figurative but i'm sort of interested in how far you could do that and how much is this um uh like visibility of a certain type of figurative painting ar about a politics of representation in terms of how that took place historically so i've been thinking about this in terms of debates from the late 60s early 70s around the black arts movement and debates around um like whether abstraction or representation is is a what is the more sort of viable or radical political strategy in terms of an aesthetics and I feel like um, I feel like the ground has shifted in some sense. I don't think it's quite working in the same way, but I'm sort of interested in how those debates relate to the present mm. moment. Definitely, and this comes on the back of a previous show of Flo's Flo Brooks Flo, mm. Flo Brooks's at Cubit of last year's, and I, I also saw that show. There's some shift in his work as well yeah. through that time, which you also comment upon. Do you want to just quickly outline yeah. some of those shifts? I. To me, this work, uh, this exhibition, the one that, that's just been open, felt much. Um, it felt much darker to me, mm. and sort of. I mean, I don't mean that uh, like the, uh, in terms of the subject matter or what's referenced, but it felt like it had more, uh, like uh, it felt more acerbic in mm. tone to me. It didn't feel totally affirmative in some way whereas I think that the exhibition that was at Cubit felt to me like a more affirmative relationship to what figurative representation means and does in terms of its capacity to make visible a certain community mm. or set of relations and this one felt much more oblique and opaque in how it was doing those things and and more uh, uh, like acerbic in tone, which to me made it much more interesting. And mm. I think that there were these, as you were describing, there's these like different levels at which people would access this work. Like not everyone is going to recognize every reference to, um, I don't know, like cruising or a menstrual cup or whatever. Yeah. Or And there's lots of references in there that I'm like, why a stack of Pringles? You know, is that a reference that I'm not getting? Mm. But maybe not um <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe the pringles are just a stack of pringles um, yeah i mean in a way it's actually recalling like the same sort of visual density of someone like larry Pittman, perhaps as well mm. that's sort of the icon i mean it's a very different style but you know the sort of arrangement or the kind of density of those associative yeah. relationships perhaps and also of course how it imbricates within sexuality and gender as well is also yeah. evident in some of his works um i know we've got a full program today um, so I might have to move on, which is so unfortunate, but uh, uh, to be discussed and to be continued. Um, 
Lizzie, um, if I may, uh, we can. <laughs> uh, Lizzie, uh, you uh, were in New York, uh, I guess, some time ago now. It's in September. You were there, end of September, to see the uh, before projection, uh, looking at video sculpture. And I guess this is a particular category of, um, I guess, video production and display uh, that has been typically perhaps overlooked. And that's what this exhibition was trying to affirm, this sort of where this stands in relation to what has become more ubiquitous projection and latterly in our current context, sort of flat screen monitors and so on and so forth. Um, and it's sort of almost dematerialized presentation of imagery. Um, so this in a way is a kind of like, I suppose like a rebuttal in some ways, um, perhaps, and a kind of an attempt to stake some kind of idea around sculpture even maybe. Yeah. Um, do you want to pick up on that or? Yeah, I'm yeah. super interested in all of these things. Um, it was a while ago. It's open for another week. And obviously it's in New York. I was in New York in September for the New York Art Book Fair because I also work for Bookworks. <coughs> and um, we had a stand there. And PS1 is very nearby. But I realized that um, this exhibition had been also at MIT at the Vera List Center earlier in the year. Um, and so I... Yeah, there was actually this really interesting kind of omission and it was just because of there not being enough time and enough space according to the conditions of loaning and presenting um, Out of the Corner by Adrian Piper. Um, so that work was not in the show, but then that struck me as immensely interesting as... Um, something not to have in an exhibition of video which is typically thought of as something that is um, freely circulating easy to move around from one place to the other and um, yeah it was also a while ago because I got stuck in the Krauss prison the Rosalind Krauss prison <laughs> <laughs> and um, Chris told so this was going to be in the previous issue although I'm, I'm really happy it's in this issue because it um, it's nice to have it in the same issue as the Dara Birnbaum interview and obviously all these other contributors who are here right now. Um, but yeah, it, and also the work in the exhibition um, by Birnbaum is very different, I think, than the ones she discusses in here, which have Absolutely. A much it's very different. more yeah. of a relationship to activism yeah. and um, and the kind of culture that video is often associated with as being like mm -hmm. something that you can take out into the streets, um, something that has a more active role. Um, although, of course, as we see here, it doesn't. Um, it can also be a, a contemplative form. And um, so, yeah, there's this relationship that um, video has and that all... I guess all artwork has or artists are put in this position of figuring out their relationship to action and like, yeah, a contemplative work and an active work. Um, <coughs> obviously there's everything in between that. But as soon as these works are included in this exhibition by fortune of them having been made specifically for the gallery space, they tend towards being more of the contemplative type of artworks. Um, but there are artists in the show, like Montadas, who I wasn't aware of before, who um, did work on TV. Like, there are artists here who had state TV commissions, which then make the artwork much more difficult to sort of extract from 
this kind of total flow of TV information. Mm. And so, yeah, I found it incredibly productive or thought-provoking to be in this exhibition and have these works extracted from this like fast-paced mm. flow of information and be able to actually walk around them and um, think about this moment with some kind mm. of touchstones and like a relatively restricted um, number of works. Just there are 11 there. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, this because it spans quite a broad period of time in a way, 74 to 95. And yeah. you talk about TV and, this, of course, image capture or capturing of uh, TV shifted significantly over that period in terms of recording, uh, you know, VCRs and so on. Yeah. And so initially someone like Dara Birnbaum couldn't actually, you know, you could that sort of such as Wonder Woman and so on, those films, you should have to go to the TV stations themselves in order to... Uh, you know, manipulate and use those kind of images. They weren't something you could just rip off the TV or anything yeah. like that. You'd actually have to go to organize yourself to go to the TV channel and get access to the original, you know, master files in a way. And so that's kind of interesting when you talk about apprehension of those kind of materials and also how they relate to actual objects as well, because they obviously. Uh, present themselves in a singular way as opposed to again something that is just moving across the screen in a more general way um so these are you know specifically objects as much as images yeah and a lot of them are really clunky um and quite retro because they're presented on the monitors of the time of their making um but there's this really um, there's a work by Takesha, Takahiko Yamura. Oh, that is a typo. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Live on a typo. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, Takahiko Yamura's TV for TV is um, uh, presented on two monitors that I think are of their time, which is 83. Um, they're very bulky, they're pressed with their screens facing into each other or basically touching where they can. Um, so the the images are directed onto each other's screens so you can only see the light around them. Um, but the images that are actually um, being transmitted are images of the moment of you being in that exhibition. So it's like a live stream in a way mm -hmm. um it's coming from tv but um um yeah there's that relationship between the the now and the live and the the clunky and the retro and the of its time of making um that comes out really prevalently in that work and yeah just what you were saying about um having to go to different places and having to reformat different things um depending where you're showing them or what the what medium of recording is used. Um, there was, I also went to the cinema um, in, during the same trip in September to see the Seven Deadly Sins film. Okay. And I'm going to not remember all the seven artists who made films in this work, but um, they were commissioned and broadcast separately, I think, um, for TV in various ways. Uh, there's a Valley Export film in there. There's seven women, are mm -hmm. uh, horrible, yeah. horrible word, women artists. But anyway, so there are seven women who made these different films, Seven Deadly Sins, 
each interpreted a sin in quite in quite surprising ways. There are some very unconventional interpretations of sins. It's a really brilliant film um, or set of films, and um, it was one of the artist's jobs to um, make everything um, possible to show in one single reel in a cinema screening. Um, obviously that's again very different from you can't move around a cinema screen you've got to sit there and mm. and be still pretty much usually um whereas these i was always like moving around um, yeah you pick i mean you talk a little bit about how the medium itself allowed different kinds of na- you know different kinds of identity let's say or formations of different um positions to become enabled or kind of went for you know you talk uh in terms of feminism certainly um uh, you mentioned vandalin green um but i know similarly darren birnbaum you know for them it was like and it opened up a, a space that perhaps didn't feel available um to them yes via other more traditional forms of art making and practices you know painting yeah. sculptures and so on so in a way you talk a bit about those essentializations of those essentialisms of those particular mediums and how these kind of shifted as well through video. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, that's an interesting... Yeah, maybe that's the sense in which the Kraus prison is a prison mm. um, because I read, I reread the video narcissism essay of 1976 when I was preparing or procrastinating around this piece. Um, and... You know, she writes that piece that's in, I think, the first issue of October, um, just after October has been formed in relation to the Linda Banglis centrefold, um, where um, Linda Banglis's gallery of 74, um, in 74, buys uh, advertising space in the in Art Forum, and um, there she is, uh, oiled up with a double-ended dildo, looking very cool um and robert morris and her had also um bought this um dildo together and it's there's this work called parentheses and there are other live videotapes and rosin is kind of uncomfortably implicated in this situation um so someone like james bowden tells us in um his um essay on on this particular moment and um, it's like all the kind of so the video narcissism essay like tells us that video is essentially narcissistic, and I guess it's this question of whether a medium has some kind of essence that I'm looking at in this piece. Um, and I wonder. I mean, there's also Jack Burnham, maybe as my cellmate in the prison here, um, <laughs> who is. Um, <laughs> saying he's in an argument with Rosalind Krauss in 76 when she writes this book called Passages in Modern Sculpture which really upholds some some kind of canonical artists like Richard Serra and people who don't really need to be defended because um, they're already big and they're making big work that doesn't need the support and well I don't know whatever. yeah um, <laughs> Meanwhile, Jack Burnham is writing about sculptures vanishing base and he's writing systems aesthetics and they're both pretty ambivalent about the effect of mass media on art. So Krauss is saying that art has been disastrously affected by mass media. Maybe she's thinking of Centrefold, maybe she's thinking of a million different things as well, probably. Um, And in his very bitchy review of passages in modern sculpture, 
Jack Burnham writes that Krauss does bodily harm to the work she attempts to explicate, and he also writes that he well he questions are the electromagnetic waves of video a form of sculpture, and he's asking this question. Um, I think semi-seriously, it's it's kind of unclear because what he's challenging here is the linear development of art um, as a series of kind of um, purifying steps or progressive steps in history. And he's questioning that he's in a strange moment. So are all the critics and art historians in that moment of whether whether that is something that they are upholding or whether they are trying to define what it is that makes an artwork an artwork and what it is that makes it a cultural a cultural object of more general consumption um and yeah one thing so you asked me about identities and stuff um there's this work that i was just thinking about as i was cycling here um the friederica petzold work and um, maybe I gave this like slightly short shrift or implied that I was kind of not into this work at all. Um, I wasn't really. <laughs> I was sort of like, oh, this is really annoying. Just all these like different bodily parts. Um, mm. It's a sort of um, fairly standard. I mean, maybe not in its time or maybe it's there are still probably many interesting ways of doing this thing. Um, yeah, just to quickly describe it, it's a stack of monitors, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah but, a stack of monitors. Yeah. I've got it right in front of me. Yeah. Um, the book has, it's on the front cover of the, the exhibition catalogue as well and it had this weird like belt around the book, sort of like a modesty cover and it has the, the eyes and the, there are four monitors, a stack vertically, eyes, mouth, breasts and crotch. Um, and there's sort of each one is a separate video lasting about 10 minutes each. There are these sort of slight movements and eye rolls and mouth twitches and breast movements and crotch twizzings. Twizzings. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Where that came to mind for some reason. <laughs> um, and she's painted her body white and her breasts black and her mouth black and her crotch black. And I thought, why why is she doing that? Apparently her um, her project is one of making the body more abstract, fragmenting the parts, breaking it down. And I thought, well, this looks kind of bad. And I don't know, it's like the body is a very difficult thing yeah, to I think, abstract. Yeah, and, I think some um, works maybe have it dated a tiny yes, bit more than others. Yeah, uh, but, and yeah. it's generally not, not the thing to do to paint yourself white or black. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about this work in relation to the non-standardization of the body and the specificity of the body, um, and how on the one and how she stands in relation to media. So she's making her I don't know. There's a standardization going through the video and the monitors, and then harking back to painting on the other hand, and the body being somewhere imbricated in all of these things. So. I don't know. I was thinking, may uh, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a genuine question. Yeah, how convinced I am. Um, yeah, and it is obviously one that's sensitive to its time and where she's from, and which is Austria. Yeah. Okay, I think we might have to. Unfortunately, Lizzie, we might have to draw a close there for the time being. But uh, as I said, the, the rest of the reviews in the magazine. So if you do read it, it uh, gives you a sort of picture about the rest of the show as well. Um, Morgan. Oh. I know. <laughs> Quick. Get to, to the, the microphone. Mic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm on it. <laughs> you were covering uh, Bo Gamlin, um, who, which is a collective of three artists, one of whom has died, uh, Paul Bellwell, the other being um, 
Robert Wilson. Oh, am I jump, yes. jumping in? Yeah, yeah. Andy Beam. Yeah, Robert, the other yes. is the sculptor Robert yeah. Wilson, and and uh, and then performance artist Anne Bean. And just to say that Paul Burwell was a founder of London Musicians Collective, which was responsible for Resonance FM. So just so you know, oh, a bit yeah. of trivia for listeners there. That's yeah. a good one. Uh, so you were up in Dundee. I know it was a very fleeting visit. Uh, you just yeah, describing went, to me the. Uh... I went up to Dundee and I travelled ten hours to get. Well, I travelled five hours on the Friday up there, five hours on the Saturday back, and spent like about eight or seven working hours in Dundee. Yeah. And Bo Gamlin were a collective that formed. I'm going to say late seventies. No, well, yeah. both. Bo, yeah. yeah, you're just used to saying it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, everyone <laughs> forms in the late seventies. Late seventies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like Bo Gamble Ensemble, I think formed in 1983. Although Paul Burwell and Anne Bean had a uh, had a, a previous life as a kind of um, uh, post-punk uh, no wave band yeah. who released an, uh, a song called um, "Low Flying Aircraft," which is actually amazing. You can search it on YouTube. It's it's pretty it's pretty banging. So. Um, uh, Bo Gamelan Ensemble formed in 1983 and haven't really um, dissolved. I think uh, as as um, uh, Paul Burwell passed away um, uh, a while ago, they've now they're now still functioning, but they have sort of functioned in a different um, mode as Wob, which is Bo turned backwards. Yeah, but they're still existing, still doing things, but just not on the scale that they were doing previously, which was. Um, huge gigantic yeah and particularly they i mean they made works in in the docklands i mean i've seen numerous films of theirs over the years um and you see them sort of like out in these sort of remote parts of what now are very gentrified areas of the docklands making these works and you sort of talk about that a lot this sort of the shift in the city the shift in culture do you want to talk about how yeah so it, yeah. basically um bo gamelon ensemble it's a it's a it's a trio, but um, what they did is they made these huge like constructions of scrap metal, which would then uh, be the settings for like large scale no- performances of kind of noise music or atonal music. Um, but also they'd be punctuated by like a pirate huge pyrotechnic displays and like uh, flaming drums, big things, flames being hurled through the air, and. Um, they would they would do these things in locations like you were just saying, Chris, like in East London. So they did one in in Raynham, and I think and at the time uh, the area was barren. I mean, there was nothing really happening there, and I think one of the interesting things to me about this retrospective of the group is also that it's not just a retrospective about the group, but it's about the space that was available and is no longer available. And also the the set of um, behaviours that were available or set of attitudes that were available. <laughs> set of attitudes yeah. that were freely sort of um being enacted and aren't anymore so uh doing these large-scale performances with scrap metal lots of shards of glass pyrotechnics and flames flying all over the place probably couldn't happen today because of health and safety regulations uh, number one and also they couldn't happen because the space just doesn't exist anymore because it's now luxury apartments or other commercial buildings yep yeah but that's what that's what these works intersect in a way um you're absolutely right it's sort of like these zones of a city in my mind how they've been closed down you know i think even of some of joan jonas's work you know when you see that in the downtown new york and her performing these kind of simple actions you know again those kind of when i watch those films you can you can see how those those yeah. makings could now no longer be there, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting when we think about, say, London as a city or any kind of real conurbation in this country, how things have been pushed to those margins. And 
perhaps are you are you reflecting on the fact that it's the city itself or that's been shifted and has these kind of have these actions and moved somewhere else or do you just feel like there's just a general diminishment of well, I, obviously, the art world's got a lot more conservative. These things have happened in tandem, haven't they? So there's yeah. been, like, let's go all the way back to 1979, right? So yeah. this is not just a, a localised phenomenon that's happening in the city of London. All major metropolitan cap- cities um, or bases in the world are going through their own processes of, like, um, transformation or reformation, whereby uh, uh, informal activity on the streets gets criminalised or legislated out of existence and then the city itself is getting changed into something else. Uh, So all those people that would have done this informal behaviour on the streets are pushed out of the city and like wealthy people are welcomed in. And what happens is you get this sort of um, steel and glass urban environment that has absolutely nothing happening on the streets. Mm. In tandem with that has been the, the steady professionalization of contemporary art. So whereby you had lots of grassroots organizations, quite random, daring people doing these things like Bo Gamelan Ensemble. Increasingly, you've got sort of... Um, mild blandly dressed uh, administrators curators and directors presiding over things that are supposed to happen in the streets that are actually quite banal so you don't get this um encounter where you, you sort of um, you don't get a, a galvanic encounter where you come across something that's so strange and so unsettling that it may lead to some uh, uh sort of aesthetic awakening and you don't get things that are going to do that from an overtly political um uh end of the spectrum either that's that's how i feel you you very rarely get those things because of those shifts and i think the important thing is to say that they they've been happening together it's not by accident that the city is now this location for people with lots of money and it's really bland and nothing's going on and it's and art is also a bland location where you're you're really going to get stuff that's kind of really pushing at the edges so it was exciting to me to come across Bo Gamelon Ensemble, I'd, I'd never heard of them before, and to just get a kind of dispatch from a time previously where this stuff was happening. But what I was also uh, excited about was the, the notion that really it hasn't gone, it's still there, it's just sort of latent and we need to pull it out. Mm. I think there's there's a certain, there's a level of politeness about everything, even there's a politeness about uh, um, speaking truth to power. It's like yeah. it has to be done within a kind of sanitised, austere, white cube space or something that has a similar um, uh, similar feel to it. And it has to be presided over by somebody who allows you to inhabit that space. And I just feel like if we could somehow claw back uh, and take ownership of more informal locations, uh, then maybe we'd be able to connect with that spirit that um, that, that was so present in Bo Gamelon Ensemble's work. Yeah, really great. I mean, yeah. And also, you know, you make a nice point about chrononormativity yeah. and 4-4 music, which was yeah. a really, I thought, a really succinct yeah, way Nick of describing. That, Nick that off of Time Binds, uh, the book Time okay. Binds. Do you remember that? I can't remember, I who, wrote, <laughs> I can't remember who wrote the book. Yeah. Uh, Freeman, I think. But like, um, the point being is that like music is often presented as this thing that's like a democratically accessible to everybody uh, and used over and against contemporary art which is supposed to be elitist like um and like unapproachable but the thing is music has that kind of quasi universality because it's, it's it's the same tune like really think about it when you listen to i'm talking about popular music i'm not talking about experimental avant-garde new classical music or whatever i'm talking about stuff that's in the charts or stuff that you just hear as like oral detritus in the air it's all four four time and it's all based on a few different themes love and loss 
Well, basically, love and loss. Well, yeah, I mean, it, actually, you think of Hito, Hito's tale. She made that work. I mean, you know, I know. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't say it. <laughs> well, but, you can. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, we have. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so she took the most used words in, a, in, a, in music and, and made, made it the work. work out, yeah. yeah. And, and I was excited. See, the thing is as well, which is exciting about them, is that they kind of combined two things that interested me when I was growing up. So I grew up on an estate and I grew up in an urban environment, but the, the sort of the sonic thing that I was moving towards was abstraction, experimentation, dissonance and discordance. For me, those are the most exciting elements to seek out, not regularity, not the sort of stereotypically urban soundscape that I was prescribed. So it was nice to see those two things coming together again. And also to be like, there is something about noise that is just has um, a radical content. It's really difficult to co-opt. It's not like you can't hum it. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. not, it's not on the radio. So, yeah, th- th- there was just something about it, something about. Yeah. Well, you said, I mean, even some students involved, which you really nicely quote, actually, Callum Ingram and Connor Gray. Yeah. Who described participating in the work as the best thing they'd ever done. Yeah. they. <laughs> 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 honestly they were yeah. I, they were just sort of shell-shocked and and stood there so, so wide-eyed and into it and i think one of the things that um paul burwell said in a, a quote in one of the booklets is really apt i think he said like um at the time in the 1980s they were getting a lot of flack um, from people who were ma- as he said making like issues based work because they were saying well you're not doing that you're kind of just indulging and mm. I've got time for that position, but I also have time for his response, which is to say that, you know, you need to have space for people to enact the change that you're trying to agitate for. And I think um, while people always talk about the liberatory possibilities of art, you know, as as o- over and against people saying we need more political art, you know, they still mm. say all art is political. Stop being pedantic. Well, the thing is, like. That what they're talking about is an encounter with something that alters your sort of um, aesthetic palette, right? And somehow that reaches into like a metaphysical thing or a moral and ethical thing. But it's not that doesn't happen through just like observant, <laughs> like um, uh, sort of pro- highly professionalized work. It happens through encounters with the sort of thing that Paul Burwell and Bo Gamelan Ensemble were doing. That is. Um, I want another word to explain it, but was radical. <laughs> yeah. Just because that's so debased at the moment, but yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that note of radicality uh, and also kinds of agitation, um, perhaps Mark Fisher, I think, quite nicely intersects at that, at that particular junction in a way. Yeah. And similarly, because he was very much interested in music and also noise and punk. In fact, his new book, K-Punk, uh, brings together many of his writings that have previously been unpublished or on his blog. Um, Mark Fisher taught at Goldsmiths and has recently come back. You know, I think there's been a huge interest in his work, you know, at some point since he's died, uh, which was in 2017. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of bringing together of some of that archive in a way. Um, Do you want to, I mean, in a way, it's quite hard to talk about someone like Mark Fisher because it's such a, you know, he actually released a huge amount of material which is testament to actually the size of this book, which is, I think, over 400 pages. 700. 700 Okay, so... Where we start is a bit sort of um, not too sure, but uh, should we start by saying maybe what his main principles were as a writer? Maybe that's a good way to kind of break down some of what he's trying to do, really. Yeah. Um, so I guess he's um, Mark Fisher's probably best known for the 2009 book Capitalist Realism, where he um, quotes 
Zizek and Jameson saying that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And that's sort mm. of what he, since since that was published, became best known for and was um, questioned most about um, throughout the rest of his life. And K-Punk does um, allude to that and, and keeps going back to capitalist realism and a lot of the writings there. The only writings really that are published in um, book form that also appear in K-Punk relate to um, capitalist realism. And a lot of the interviews that are collected in the latter part of the book um, are extended conversational pieces with Mark Fisher and various figures um, about his main themes. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, you sort of zero in on some of the main or some of the key sort of subjects that you find sort of illuminating one being uh the student-led demonstrations um which were in i can't believe that's 20 was that 2010 yeah that long, how long ago um yeah um so yeah you pick up on these things and also because he was very much part of that sort of institution goldsmiths and so on it feels very much connected to that uh subject area completely and i, I picked up on those um those blog posts specifically because while i was reading the book and researching some of the um writings around Mark Fisher that weren't published um, and writing uh, this review as well um, it was during the second um, march for a people's vote so Mm. that was very much that sort of mass mobilisation was very much in political uh, landscape and on our TV screens um, and there was a lot of rhetoric from both sides about um, class politics which is something that Mark Fisher writes extensively about and wrote extensively about um, and something that his works are still used um, to illuminate and argue mm-hmm. as well. Um, and as you say, especially within the context of um, education and alternative education systems. Um, yeah, I mean, his, I mean, that essay that comes to the, the, the one that sort of really kind of divided people, actually, that exiting the vampire's castle certainly picked upon the idea of what the institution... I mean, that was very much a critique, I think, of Goldsmith. I mean, am I right? I mean... It was a critique of the way I reread it um, a few years after its uh, publication was more a critique of a public voice of the left, especially on social mm. media. Um, it led him to leave Twitter and other social platforms because of um, the sort of radical, mm-hmm. radicalised voices on both both sides of um, arguments where he felt there wasn't a uh, solidarity or a conversation. It was more mm. of a... more of a battleground. Um, and it's still a very polemic and argued piece. Yeah. Um, and as I say in the review, just Googling it now, you realise how networked and influential Fisher's, Mark Fisher's writing still is, because um, mm. it is brought up again and again um, as both a piece which s- some people would, uh, would argue is flawed, especially around gender politics, and also um, used to back up arguments for um, views, views on social media that people have. You mean in the sense that how it's being 
I mean, not to sort of go too much into this particular, but, you know, the idea of instrumentalization, how he's being instrumentalized by both voices, so the right and the left, in a way, are using this essay to kind of drive points home. Is that what you 100%, mean? 100%, yeah. yeah. And in a sense, the, he's talking about how these divisions between within the left themselves are actually cleaving out that space that's possible for right to manipulate left voices. Is that... That's yeah. how I read it, yeah. Because yeah. um, you've got these arguments that the... And it comes full circle to the last piece um, in K-Punk. It's an unpublished blog um, for K-Punk, which never made the light of day and is published in its very uh, rough draft form, uh, mm -hmm. which is Mannequin Challenge, um, which argues that the it's unsurprising that there's a a rhetorical sort of class politics being played out uh with Brexit and and Trump mm. um which neither of which were yeah actualized during during um his lifetime and also it's interesting you mentioned the idea of anti-intellectualism uh which really you know has become i think such a kind of pernicious and broad way now of inter just common interaction um, and in a way how a lot of public public people, and I mean this across many parts of society in a way, have to almost adopt that pose in order to grant access and admission to a broader mainstream image. Um, and I think many people do that either willingly or unwillingly uh, to get that kind of access. You know, I think in a sense, yeah, as even to address oneself as a feminist, I'm talking about, you know, popular figures. You know, if they even say they're feminists, somehow that now is seen as a marginal or even like an antagonistic uh, identifier. You know, I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think what's gone on to get to that point. And now the bar is shifted to that point where you've got to kind of just go, I'm interested in every all human. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like yeah. we can't address a political, you know, public public figures can't even address it. what seemed to me quite it's straightforward and, you know, political points you know we're kind of just getting to this kind of mushier space and and for and it's that reason which is you know many reasons but you know social media part perhaps being one of those um so i guess that's what mark fisher in a way inadvertently sort of touches upon um and he does it very well by um very illuminating accessible and well illustrated points in a lot of his blog posts and um in his books as well using Intellectualizing the everyday, especially um, what is what would be called pop culture by most people, um, which for me made me consider how much I think everyday choices or how politicized they are, and why I sort of like, as you say, with music, go to those every everyday cultural phenomenon. Um, uh, his writing on music was. Yeah, he wrote. I mean, that's his background. He wasn't he the editor or one of the co-editors or something like that for Wire, Wire magazine. Yeah, he was a commissioner. So for his Wire. his background's actually in music, um, which again is probably one of the reasons why he didn't really get picked up by the art world. Part, you know, I'm assuming that's one of his trajectories very much within that, within that, not within you know art art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's interesting that he's now being very much celebrated within the art world. I think because I, I think. Um a lot of what he writes about is now so pertinent and to the fore of what 
artists are are talking about through their art things um like the everyday the politicization of everyday practices or relationships to um as you say with the flow flows work um the the personal and the political being so entwined but also very visible mm -hmm. um so with his writing through music, I think it's just a very accessible <coughs> way of um, theorizing um, that which ordinarily wasn't theorized. He wrote a lot. We mentioned a lot um, that blog culture was similar to early music, the early music press, which sort of had no currency in the late 90s and early noughties um, when he started blogging. Um, and it became sort of the most immediate connected way of re uh, reassessing the theory um, that can be sort of brought into everyday practices. Okay, good. Well, it's 700 pages. One can dip in <laughs> over the Christmas period. Um, at this point, I think we're going to quickly try and do um, best of... Well, highlights and lowlights yeah. of 2017. <laughs> so let's, uh, well, let's start with highlights. Um, who wants to go first on that? Who has like... I've got my highlights ready okay. to go. Is that go, right? go yeah. Morgan. All right, highlights. In at number five. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, no, seriously. Tommy okay. Orange. To this is a novel by Tommy Orange called There, There. Get it? It's amazing. I'm just, I can't go anymore because I haven't got much time. So uh, there's a film out called Disobedience. One of the best films I've seen this year. Fantastic. Check it out. Uh, <laughs> um, Matthew Lopez's play Inheritance it's it's a fantastic play please please go and see it it's eight hours long but you can go and see it in two parts honestly it's, it's going to be one of the most profound experiences that you've had um, this year or perhaps in the past decade um, and then also one last thing Anatole Dolgoff's biography of his dad uh, Sam Dolgoff called Left of the Left which yeah. is a book about um, old school uh, left politics when it actually was a thing that was connected to working class people and unions like the IWW also known as the Wobblies so check that out the Wobblies that's yeah. good isn't it mm. um thanks for that blast Morgan yeah. that was pretty yeah. <laughs> I wish that I had prepared my list <laughs> no, like no, that because no, I, I love making it, lists yes. <laughs> and I I but I can't I haven't done that so I, I will say the things that I really I've only thought about art things. So Neolithic Childhood, the exhibition at Hakko Bay in Berlin, which was on this summer, uh, amazing. Yeah, that was incredibly comprehensive amazing work. Amazing yeah. archival exhibition yeah. around the, the writer Karl Einstein. Uh, made me totally rethink the history of the avant-garde and modernism. Um, Sandra Perry's exhibition at the Serpentine earlier this year yeah. was probably the best solo show I think I saw. And then my favourite thing that I saw, which I want everyone to see in the way that Morgan just described his favourite yeah, things, yeah. was um, Lisa Yeshka and Lucy Bainan's amazing play called um, The Decline of the Home Office. Did you see it, Lizzie? I actually didn't. I think it was called that The Decline funny. of yeah. the Home Office. Amazing. Yeah, well, you recommended that to me, one of their works last year. Tragedy which, of Trees Yes, Tragedy which of Trees Which is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I just want, yeah. like, if they could do performances on the street the way that you're describing Bo Gamelan Ensemble and the use of that, I, I think that we'd be in a different place than <laughs> I mean, we they are. they did one in the pub. They did do one in the pub, but, you know... It would be. I just is would it, love these works it on to be somewhere? Is it on somewhere? Mm, they did it once in London, like a uh, few months ago. But I hope that they'll do it again soon. Yeah. 
Anyway. Yeah, some of one of them is actually online. You can watch the tra- the tragedy, tragedy of Theresa May. May. That's uh, yeah. I think yeah. That, yeah. Anyway, they're amazing. You can watch that. Lizzie, uh, yeah, I know I, it's not I've to got, put you on the spot. I've but, got so. all art stuff as well. But um, Lan mentioned Sandra Perry's show at Serpentine. Um, I went to a reading um, that was uh, Diamond Stingley and a few other people whose names I won't read off right now. But um, Sable Ellie Smith's reading at that um, reading of poetry, other forms, um, as part of that show, was brilliant. Um, Phyllis Christopher, whose work I came across through the um, Redcliffe Hall exhibition in GI, mm-hmm. um, saw some more work of hers. She's from San Francisco, now living in Newcastle. Oh, was and, she in Newcastle? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and she was also at Strange Perfume in Manchester, which is a queer culture book fair, uh, or zine fair, publishing fair. Um, and I saw some more prints and some of more of her work for On Our Backs magazine, which is a lesbian erotica, but also like documented a lot of political protest um, in the 90s, early 90s mainly. Um, yeah, there's some of her works. I don't know if you, uh, at the, uh, Still I Rise that show at Nottingham uh, Contemporary. Okay, there was a handful there. of works of hers there as well, which okay. looked at the sort of offshoot act of anti-abortion uh, yeah. campaigns. Yeah. Took place in San yeah. Francisco. Something you were mentioning to Jack, like about the way protesters now, like women's rights are human's rights, is something I saw yeah. in the Trump campaign. And then if you look at the work that she's documenting, so much more mm. sophisticated and just like funny and on point. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm running over time. No. Um, no? Okay, no. more things. Um, Keep going. The, okay. <laughs> Joseph Buckley's work that I really liked in um, the Goma show at GI because there was this 2016 sign above the door where the exit sign was, which kind of summed up Brexit for me, but also like um, the need from an exit of 2016, um, mm-hmm. but also related to these like heavy sculptures. Um, saw another show of his uh, art in general in New York, um, which is really brilliant. Um, and yeah, Jack, go. quick, Jack, oh, come while on. While we're talking stage, yeah. a lot of the best thing I've seen on stage was um, David Byrne's latest tour, American Utopia. Okay. It was just the best amalgamation of music, performance, choreography, and uh, sort of set design I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can catch that when it comes back round. I really enjoyed Adam Linder's show at South London Gallery. This is sort of thing. Um, I enjoyed the Riga Biennial. That was also quite good. Mm. Um, yeah. Can I do some lowlights? You can, yeah. quickly. Yeah. Yes. Okay, lowlights. Coming in at number three, Elizabeth Murdoch. Uh, Elizabeth Murdoch, spawn of Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> is in the art world. She's not leaving. Why? <laughs> the Freelance Foundation. People should be ashamed to take money from it. Why are you taking money from it, number one? And Elizabeth Murdoch should not be in Arts Council England. Get her out. Let's, re- let's get the campaign going again. <laughs> At number two, it's Luke Willis Thompson, the biggest <laughs> mediocrity in the art world. This guy is terrible. Yeah. And at number one, it has to be Maria Balshaw, who cannot oh. open her mouth. Who cannot open her mouth for faux pas. Uh, was excited to see uh, young uh, urban males eating fried chicken in the gallery, and also about her comments uh, on sexual abuse possibly being the fault of people who didn't know how to say no. Yeah, I know that it's a very troubling uh, remark that she made. Uh, let's, let's hope they do better next year. Yeah. <laughs> Any other lowlights? 
Uh, Simon Denny's terrible Simon, show, yeah. Shinkle Pavilion, which was like a tech bro fantasy rendered in the most uninteresting kind of yeah. pseudo documentary crap I've seen in a while. One more, any one more? One Antoine Catala at Marvel yeah. Contemporary is so bad. It's a pneumatic <laughs> pumping system. It's like a life support system because this work could not exist of its own accord. It needed to be plugged into any the gallery's Any other cath- cathartic <laughs> remarks? Do we need to go off our chest? No. Good. Okay. <laughs> 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 Let's just leave and say thank you. We're back in February. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.